This episode is brought to you by Arden Labs Education. Sign up today to learn advanced concepts in Go, Docker, Kubernetes, Terraform, and more. Visit ardenlabs.com forward slash education for more information. Welcome to the Arden Labs podcast. Our special guest today is Colby Fayok. Colby, thank you for joining us today. Hey, thanks for having me. Hey, man, where are you coming from? I'm west outside of the Philadelphia area, so around Westchester, if you're familiar, but usually I try to go pretty broad and then narrow in if people know the area. I think that's smart, because even though I grew up on the island of Long, I think I went to Philadelphia once, and my sister lives in some remote town like an hour from the airport. I don't know, dude. So yeah, I don't know that area. I know the Poconos. I was forced as a kid to go to the Poconos like every year. Popular travel destination. (laughs) I really didn't get it. And the skiing there is horrible too. So uh, now here I am just hurting Colby's state. So I apologize for that. But yes, I have a good sense of where you are. Cool, cool, cool. Why don't you give everybody a couple of minutes uh, of your background and and what you're doing today? Sure. So I'll start off with what I'm doing now. Uh, I'm a developer experience engineer at Cloudinary, which is a media uh, management and delivery platform. Um, I do things like content creation, build integrations, proofs of concepts, a lot of code-based things to help uh, teach people basically tools of the web, but also Cloudinary within that context, right? Um, my background is engineering and UX design. So uh, prior to this, I was a lead uh, UX and front-end engineer at a small software company. I did some fun projects like a video streaming site and uh, built satellite uh, mapping dashboards, which I had a lot of fun with. Um, but a, a lot of stuff, it kind of led me to wanting to teach to help maximize my impact. And that's where I am today. So what I am not a front end developer. I'm not even allowed to talk to the designers. Like this is the only time I get to talk to Eric, actually. Uh, that's how bad I am with front end. But I'm constantly struggling with what is the, uh, what's the latest tech that everybody should be using right now for building front ends. So it's definitely different depending on who you talk to, because there's some really, uh, the, the great thing is there's a lot of awesome tools. Yeah, also, the bad thing is there's a lot of different tools. So you, you got to, you have a lot, uh, almost too many options, but um, I'm a big React fan. So within that world, Next.js is pretty much the leader. Uh, it has a huge uh, hold of the market for front end tooling. Um, but then you have some other tools like Svelte. Uh, which is a little bit different for how it's actually approaching uh, building the web app um, inside the browser, uh, shipping less JavaScript, those kind of things, um, and other newcomers on their way. Um, but you know, generally speaking, I'm I like to stick to React. I'm a big fan of it, and uh, have been using that for a long time. Have you done any mobile development on with any of these tools? Like, I keep hearing Flutter, 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 Flutter. Flutter. I would actually wouldn't mind learning it. But I'm not a front end guy. I've never done any mobile development. Um, I've you know built mobile web experiences, but that's a different beast, right? Um, but I've never done any native development. This is a podcast about you, and we're going to get to kind of where you're at today. But I want to kind of hear that that journey. So just to kind of set some time frames here, Cole, especially since you grew up in the U.S., what year did you graduate high school? Sure. I graduated high school in 2006 uh, from the middle of nowhere, Pennsylvania. (laughs) 
So that means you had about 50 people in your high school? That's, uh, I think it was about 70, but yeah, that's about accurate. Yeah. Very, very small school. So I had 300 kids, which was really small for Long Island. Okay. But where I went up to school in upstate New York, I went all the way up, like Potsdam. You know, I met kids that had like 30 people in there and not just from like elementary to middle school like there weren't enough kids to even change schools right like you you lived with these kids which has to be incredibly difficult i think at some level because especially as you you turn into a teenager and you get into those dating years like everybody's dated everybody already right so it's like <laughs> does the school go crazy when somebody new suddenly like comes into the school it's like yeah no it's it's interesting especially like i didn't have i wasn't in a school with i had multiple teachers of course since i was at that number of students that it permitted that but can only imagine that if it's a 30 person school like do they just have the same teachers for every single subject uh throughout the well, i have to imagine they would move but it would be the same class right like the entire class shifts to the to do the teachers come to them to make it easier <laughs> Yeah, dude, I, you know, I don't know. Even at 300 students, I kind of knew everybody in my grade. I guess that was 300 in my grade, not even the whole school. It's, it, you, know, you know, now now that I'm talking about it, I kind of knew everybody. I didn't have like close relationships with everybody, but I knew everybody, even at 300, right? So, okay, so during those high school years, those are those formative years, right? That's when you, you're starting to kind of figure out what you're into, what you're not into. Um, what were you focusing on from the time you're like 14 through 17? Did you already have some sort of core interest and an idea of what you wanted to do in life? Uh, to be honest, not really. I think I originally wanted to be a chef. So I was looking into like, you know, when you have to write your paper about what you want to do, it was about uh, like trying to explore that area. And I don't know why, like I, I'm not really even interested now in doing like in cooking or anything. But um, that whole time on the side, I was I love to play PC games. I was a big Counter-Strike and Warcraft 3 fan. Um, but what I would do on my side time is uh, build team websites and I would also customize MySpace profiles. So there was totally a seed in there of what I wanted to do. I just didn't kind of know that that's what I wanted to do. But I was really attracted to the design side of that too from a hobby perspective. Um, and that's what eventually I tried to go to school for. But you were using MySpace to, to build out those websites in 2006? So that was kind of where it started because you can kind of, I'm not sure if, if you were familiar, but you were able to add HTML, you were able to add CSS. So by being able to do that, you could really customize the page to whatever you want because you can add that HTML and then use CSS to move it around the page where you could just do a simple theme, change some colors or text colors, but you can also take a, a div, like an HTML div and overlap it onto, onto the entire website, covering up the entire MySpace part of it and create whatever you want. <laughs> You're like, I'm going to just whitewash this and then exactly, I'm going to exactly. do what I, that's pretty wild, dude. So did you have a, uh, an artistic kind of background before you started with the websites? Can you draw and all that? Or you didn't even have that. You just enjoyed kind of building. Yeah, I'm I'm not artistic at all. Um, I I mean, I, I'm sure I drew a little bit when I was growing up, like as a kid, as most kids do, but I've never considered myself an illustrator. I, I don't think I draw very well. Um, I still try to do, uh, what is it, Inktober every once in a while, if you're familiar. I try to uh, just 
improve a little bit. It's it's one of those, it's kind of like Hacktoberfest, but it's for illustrators where uh, every day there's a different prompt as to what to draw. So then you just create every day a different drawing. And, you know, just to kind of practice to maybe improve a little bit, but it never helps because I'm still an, an awful illustrator. Inktober. I have never, Eric, have you ever heard of Inked? Eric's, yeah, Eric's shaking his, have you ever participated <laughs> in Ink? October? Oh, Eric has. Eric's an amazing uh, artist, like amazing with the stuff that he can do. So I'm not surprised that he's heard of it. I, I've never heard of it. That's interesting. Yeah, it's a lot of fun because the, the prompts are completely random and you can really draw whatever you want. The, the whole goal is to just kind of push yourself to draw a little bit. And, you know, it. I can see progress over time that it's a little bit better, but it's still nothing you'd probably want to put up on a wall. See, I'm the person who believes that either you have it in you to be able to really draw or you don't. Like, I, I just don't think, like, anybody can turn me into an artist. Like, I just don't have the brain, the eyes, the feel. I don't know what it is. My sister's amazing, dude. She does makeup artist stuff, too. Like, absolutely amazing. She got that gene. I didn't get it. Do you feel like anybody could become a really strong say illustrator or drawer or do you feel like i do it kind of has to be part of your dna so i i think that there's a little bit of a an inherent natural ability whether that comes from something throughout your life or not is you know a bigger question but i definitely think most people can get to that it's just it takes a lot a lot a lot a lot of practice right and do you have the motivation to do that practice i don't i don't have that motivation and like i i don't like, I'd love to see myself get better at drawing, but I'm not good. I don't have the motivation to practice every single day. So I'm not going to do that. So I'm likely never going to be able to be a better drawler. No, I actually, I love that answer because when people tell me they don't have time to do something, I'm always like, no, no, you have all the time in the world to do the things you want to put attention to, right? I just, you just don't want to put any attention to this. And that's kind of what you're saying. So that's, that's fair. You're building out these websites, I'm imagining for yourself and your friends as you're, as you're gaming. So you're putting sort of like what stats and, and, and these types of things up on the website so you can brag about how you're beating everybody. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> imagine like a, you know, a sports team site, right? Like I have the roster. I have like screenshots. I have little profiles for everybody so you can talk about what your game, your PC uh, setup is like. It, it was a lot of fun. You know, it was something that wasn't strictly necessary, but I had a lot of fun doing it. And it was just something I would do whenever I was on a team. Um, but it was, you know, something I could show people. And it kind of inspired me to, you know, uh, this path. But are you are you doing anything else in high school? Are you playing any sports? You're, you're doing any music? Are you doing anything else? Or it's basically schoolwork, friends, gaming, and and this fun stuff you're doing? Yeah, I dabbled in some different sports here and there, uh, but nothing that I was very like uh, super wholehearted in. Um, I back in middle school, I was in like band and chorus, but I didn't continue that in high school. Uh, but I I did have a band. Uh, it was just uh, some friends of mine that we we created a few songs. I thought they were pretty good, but you know, after everybody left for college and stuff, it kind of fizzled out. But um, it was fun while it lasted. I played the guitar, the electric guitar. Did you guys get to play any concerts or? Anything in front of your peers? Yeah, a couple. Uh, we played one at the local park that was this like a little charity thing that somebody from high school set up. Uh, and then we played my my other friend's graduation party in his basement. And that was that was fun, too. So I wouldn't say concerts, but, you know, they're they're gigs, right? 
Dude, you, you were living the rock star lifestyle, man, in high school. Look at you. I need some pictures of you now on stage with the long hair. <laughs> I know you had long hair. Dude. You can't be playing guitar with I did hair. have long hair. I did. <laughs> <laughs> that, that was, you know, definitely longer than it was. It got the longest in college. Uh, but, yeah, I did have long hair. Oh, dude, we got to get some pictures. We got to get some soundtrack of Colby, like, just thrashing on the guitar, man. Nice, dude. Nice. That's cool. As you become a senior in high school, you got to start figuring out what your next steps are. So a few questions there I want you to kind of think about. Was college like an automatic thing for you or did you have some other ideas? What kind of pressure or non-pressure were your parents maybe putting on you for? I, I put a lot of pressure on my boys to get out of the house when they like were gra actually all the kids. OK, like you're out of the house. That's it. You got to go start living your life. Right. Like didn't mean I was abandoning them. It just meant like start your life. So I'm kind of curious where you're at when you're a senior about what your next steps are and, and kind of where your family's maybe pushing you. Sure. Uh, I, I always knew that I wanted to go to college. I, I'm fortunate and privileged to have had that opportunity. Um, but so like because I always knew I wanted to go, like I didn't really need that extra uh, like push from my uh, parents to do that. Um, but that said, like, I think the biggest thing was where I wanted to go. Like I, I applied to a small school um, in in Pennsylvania. I, I ended up going to Penn State main campus and um, enjoyed my time there, you know, football and. Uh, All right. You just said you applied to a small school and you ended up in Penn State. <laughs> yeah, yeah. A Nittany, a Nittany lion, right? Yes, yes, a Nittany <laughs> lion. <laughs> nice, dude. And their football program, uh, at least the last couple of years, have been, they've been coming back. I'm, I'm a big college football fan. So, are you okay? I, I'm not gonna lie. These last couple of years, I don't know if. So, I, I recently had a kid too, and I'm sure we'll get there in the journey. But like, I don't know between the pandemic and having a kid, I've just lost interest, and I haven't been able to get myself back. But I, I used to love going to the games. So much fun, so much energy in college football games, and I'm sure at some point I'll get back to that, especially as my kid grows up. But bring it back, man. Saturday, Saturday, and it just started, man. It's so much like I did too when I started having my kids. I kind of let it go, and I'm. Now I'm back again, but I'm really sad that I did. I'm really sad that I didn't make the attention on Saturdays, at least to watch that game. Like, like right. you should have the Penn State, no matter what, like th those four hours with the kids, fine. But don't, don't, don't lose that. That's, that's some advice I'm going to give you now as a 52-year-old man here. <laughs> and then one day I hope to be able to take them to the games and stuff because, you know, that's what my dad did, and I, I really enjoyed those times. All right, so you end up in Penn State. Do you already have an idea of what you want to major in at that point, or you're just gonna you're gonna try to figure it out? Yeah. So with all that work that I was doing, well, quote work that I was doing in high school, um, I ended up going for design. I uh, I tried to go into the graphic design program because um, I, I knew I wanted to do design. I did some of that little coding on the side, but I didn't know that that's what I wanted to do. But also, they didn't really have at that time like a coding program. Like they had the uh, what is it? Computer science. Uh, but that wasn't really like website stuff at that point. Right. Like it, that was still like a developing uh, topic for education. Um, so I didn't really have something like that. So it was for me, like that kind of just all came on the side, but so ultimately, yeah, graphic design. Um, 
I get there for the first two years are kind of like the introductory, uh, you start building up to it. But then after the first two years, you were supposed to apply to the program. And I'm not going to lie, my college work ethic probably wasn't the best and I didn't make it into the program. So I had to kind of switch gears there a little bit. And I ended up doing the last two years in photography, which, you know, I think helped balance out. Uh, it gave me some knowledge about being able to work with photography in my work, but overall, like it's not something that I use in my day to day. Okay, that's all. Okay, okay, that's kind of interesting because you're not really interested in a computer science degree. You're not looking to become a, a a a programmer in that traditional sense. But you love programming um, the websites. You loved programming that that sort of UI, right? I mean, it's programming at the end of the day. But a traditional computer science program isn't going to really teach HTML and that kind of stuff. But Penn State that 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 track that you were you were on right before you went into the photography was that more like arty artsy stuff or were they teaching html and css and javascript and all that so at that point they weren't teaching that at all um like i know i took one i think it was called like new media or something a class and they taught you some flash stuff uh and but they didn't really get too much into like where they didn't get anything into JavaScript or anything like that. Um, it was really just trying to create little things in Flash. And I, I don't think they even got to the code aspect. It was really just um, the editor and such. But um, yeah, the, anything that I did that was code based was all just on the side. Um, I think they kind of recommended thinking about it from a portfolio perspective and not even like learning to code. It was more so, oh, you should have a web portfolio and you should go figure out how to do that as opposed to like teaching you how to do that. Right. So I'm really confused that you went to this school when they didn't really have that thing that you were interested in, unless in your brain, it was just like, no school's going to have this anyway. And I want the four year degree. So I'm just going to go do this. And is that kind of what, what happened? So I, I don't think I knew at that time that that's what I wanted to do. Like, I don't think in my brain it was even registering that that was an opportunity that I could uh, pursue and that I enjoyed enough to, to pursue. I, so in my mind, like I wanted to do design. I wanted to come out of school as a graphic designer and work on, you know, graphic design stuff. So that's that's kind of where my mindset was at at that time. But now as you, was there, was there anything else in college that you were kind of interested in that you were doing? Was there anything more social other than the football games, which is kind of cool. Yeah, I, I wouldn't say so. it was just the typical college student stuff, you know, hanging out with friends and finding interest. But uh, yeah, I, I wouldn't say that there was anything out of the ordinary for uh, who I was. Dude, I wanted you to say I picked up the guitar again and we thrashed for another year, you know. <laughs> Man, I, yeah, the, the bad news is like my guitar career kind of went down. I had always tried to play with friends when we would go back and uh, visit at home. for, But uh, that didn't, unfortunately, it didn't um, keep up with it. And even now, like I, I rarely touch it. I want to get back into it again for my kid to make sure that like, you know, I can play for him and teach him and stuff. But uh, it's one of those things. As you're now about to graduate, what 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 is the degree you're going to end up with? It's going to be a BA in... It's called... The way they called it was integrative arts. And uh, basically what that means is that you could combine different, uh, different types of... Um, so like, you know, I combined graphic design and photography. And I'm sure there were other uh, topics that you could combine into this integrative arts um, thing. But that's ultimately what I ended, ended up with. It's interesting to me because as you're... You're leaving university, I guess you're undergraduate. 
are you thinking graduate school or are you thinking I want to get into industry? Um, I'm definitely not at that point thinking about graduate school, um, at least in a serious perspective. Like I always thought, is that something like I thought about in the back of my mind, is that something I want to do to hopefully, you know, set myself up better for my career. But I didn't really find a, there was never really an obvious path for me there as to what I would go. I like, I didn't want to go just to go. Um, so it, nothing really stood out to me as something that I wanted to pursue. So after school, um, it took me probably eight months until I found my first role. But my first role was working for a small, uh, what was it, an e-marketing company. So I was doing little designs for graphic banners and um, things like that, just like little design things on the computer uh, for their email marketing and their websites. Uh, Had a lot of fun with that. Um, And there was a lot to learn, especially with like email, um, email. And I actually was able to dip my toes into code a little bit um, because with the email and just little random things, like I was kind of learning on the job to uh, just kind of create, you know, more opportunities for what I was doing. Were you working at all while you were in university? Was there any even sort of internships or anything there? I didn't have any internships. I, I worked as a customer service rep for like two years just for some side money, but um, nothing, I wasn't working, uh, nothing that was for my career. And I kind of regret that. Um, you know, I, I'm happy with where I am, but I, I do wonder if that would have set me up for more success. And for the eight months that you were struggling to find, this is 2010, right? Yeah. Yep, 2010. Um, which was a difficult time because 2008 is when everything kind of crashed and the economy's kind of recovering at that point. So, yeah, I mean, it, it was going to take a little bit. What were you doing for those eight months? Were you just. I was living at my mom's house. Uh, I don't think I was really doing particularly anything aside from maybe trying to find side work, but like I didn't really. I'm not the kind of person that likes to go hustle and find new client work. So it was really like uh, maybe for my mom's business, I was able to create a website or for my uh, sister-in-law, those kind of things. Um, But just like little, little freelancings I could do on the side, but it was really just trying to like, most of my time was dedicated to trying to find a job. And like, I, I spread out the word of Colby Fayok as much as I could. And uh, it took a little bit of time to find uh, something that eventually clicked. Were you just looking in your town or were you willing to like, let's say a job popped up in Philadelphia. I mean, were you willing to move? Were you, were you at least expanding kind of your search? Totally. Yeah. Um, like I, I think I had areas where I uh, would be willing to move as opposed to not willing to move. I can't remember exactly what those areas were, but like it, I definitely expanded it quite a bit. Um, like I was on monster at that point. Cause like I was getting like, you know, the way that I kind of first approached it, it was trying to find companies that I wanted to work for and apply for those. And then, you know, that was not really working out. So then I started to widen my search and then, you know, eventually it was monster and just trying to find any opportunity that I could uh, because it was taking so much time. Um, and I, I was happy where I was at for my first job, but you know, it was part of that process of kind of just uh, doing a spray of setting my resume anywhere it could. Um, now thinking about it like back after like, you know, the years, I know people always say like, you should take more time for each individual cover letter and resume you send. So maybe I could have done that better. And maybe that would have resulted in better experience. But you know, the way that I did it, it took a bit of time before something actually picked up. Now, how long were you at this first job? How long did you stay there? Um, I think it was 
it was either like six months to a year, but the only reason that I left there early is because it was only a part-time job um, at that point. So I, of course, was trying to look for a full-time opportunity. And, you know, once I found something that I got an offer for, uh, I tried to present that, but they just weren't looking to bring somebody on full-time at the time. So um, at that point is when I made the switch. So, okay, so that was a part-time job. So you were still kind of looking to find that next, full-time gig and what what did you end up what who ended up deciding to hire Colby next so it's funny I actually uh regressed in my journey of web development and I went to a a a large format print company and what I mean by that is they did a lot of advertising and their specialty was wrapping cars and trucks so if you're if you're driving down the highway and you see a giant truck with the big banner on the side um, that's the kind of designs I was doing or trying to fit little design elements on a car and it was a lot of fun it was challenging and like I could do a lot of creative work with that Um, you know ultimately that's not what I wanted to do for a career but like it was a it was a fun job and really helped me uh, explore that creativity. What software are they using for that? And and was that work then sent to printing shops, or they even had their own sort of printing shop there? So they had their in they uh, they own the end to end process. So um, I I think usually I would use Photoshop or Illustrator, um, and then we would prep the design files for the printers, which we had the printers in house. Um, So that includes like adding the little crop things and all that stuff, uh, making sure that it was uh, set up properly for them to print it. Um, But they would print it and they also had the people doing the actual installation. So that includes taking the the big vinyl sheets and uh, actually wrapping the vehicles with them. All I ever remember about you know, like that printing industry is kind of dead. I still see cars that are wrapped and stuff, even buses. But I, I always remember that one of the biggest challenges, especially if you wanted to reuse the design on a website, was color, right? Because you had one color system for the computer and you have another coloring system for print. And they always, they didn't always kind of match up, right? Yeah, totally. And like, one of the biggest uh, challenges for me was, um, if I was working with one of uh, my managers, and they were looking at these designs, and they see it on the computer, like, oh, this color might look really bright and vibrant on the computer, but then translating that to the different color profile, where, of course, like, if you start in that profile, you might have a little bit easier time translating that. Um, But you know, I was learning on the job. Um, But moving that over to the print, like it's, it could look completely different and much more dull. So there was a mixture between me trying to overcompensate for colors, but also the printer was able to do some of that on their own based off of their experience with building those color systems. Um, So it was, it was interesting. Like there was, you know, it's not something I directly use today, but I feel like there was a ton of little things that I learned on that job um, that helped just indirectly apply to the things that I do. But this still isn't the job that you want and you're landing into these jobs primarily at this point because of your background and your ability to to design that that kind of stuff what's going on in your heart because you're going to work every day how long were you at this company as well so that one was about a year as well um and it you know it was because i eventually found a new opportunity but one of the cool things about it is uh so on the side like i would do some of my own little uh 
coding projects, like just trying to learn things. Like I remember I tried to learn how to do like WordPress themes because that was um, a, kind of an easy entry into that during that time. Um, and trying to uh, work with a friend who was helping teach me how to write PHP, uh, even outside of the WordPress context. But, you know, those were all just things on the side that I was interested in doing because as a hobby. But uh, the company was cool that they wanted to uh, rebuild their website. And originally they were going to contract that out, but I kind of pitched them. What if I made that for them? And uh, I ended up being able to create their new website on the job. So that gave me a little bit more actual web development experience, even though it wasn't like technically part of the job. Right now. What? Okay. Did they, was, was that extra hours that you had to put in or did they incorporate that into your, like you stopped doing some wrapping design work to work on the website? If I remember correctly, the majority of it was on the side, like they paid me extra to do that, kind of like a contractor. Um, but I think I still did some of the work on the time, like it just depended on the day, like if they wanted to come in and talk about the website, maybe we would sit there and work on it for a little bit. Uh, but ultimately, like, um, it would be extra hours that they were able to pay me for. Okay, so this is like 2011. So right about 2011. So what technology are you using for this site? And how are you how are you hosting it? Yeah, so that was a word. I believe that was a WordPress site. Um, I was using DreamHost at the time, uh, which had it was you know a standard web server company uh, that I was able to get up and running pretty easily. It's what I was using for my own little pet pop project, so it was easy to get up and running. But yeah, that's uh, WordPress. I, I don't know. Yeah, WordPress. You know that wasn't. I remember that tech back in the day too because. It was at a time, even when I was in corporate, where the marketing departments were being, for lack of a better word, pain in the ass about the velocity they wanted to move at. And to the point where even like the dev shops I were in, we were just saying, fine, you own the marketing site. You own the marketing site. Like we don't want, we don't want to deal with it anymore. And so like WordPress as a, as a content management system in a sense, right, allowed, allowed these companies to make changes whether that was good or bad is another story, but make changes very quickly on the fly. So I saw a lot of that tech, especially back then. I don't know how many people are using it like that today. I don't even know what's out there in the landscape for. Yeah, at at this point, uh, there's a big movement in decoupling the content management system from the front end um, so, so that somebody could use something like React with whatever content management system they use. So they would hit it with an API and bring it in, kind of like you'd probably see in a more traditional, like maybe homebrew uh, content management system. But WordPress is capable of doing that as well. Um, but with that expanding market, there's a ton of different headless CMS options that have uh, grown out of that need. We use, we have pretty much just a static website. So we use um, a framework named Hugo, which was written in Go by Steve Francia. And it was, it's worked for us, right? Like I think sometimes people forget that sometimes you just need a static. In fact, I had a friend recently saying, Bill, I just want a static website. All these frameworks are so complicated. And I was like, dude, just turn on, there's a, um, uh, like a load balancer web server called Caddy. I said, dude, just turn Caddy on and write some HTML pages and tell Caddy what the URLs are. And you're like, done, dude. And he's like, oh, yeah, I didn't think about right. that. You know? Yeah, no, that's that's a good point. Like, we, we tend to forget that you can still just write a, a basic HTML file, like, if you don't need all those strict requirements, right? But, yeah, no, I've heard of Hugo. I've heard great things. I've just never used it before. Yeah, I mean, it can get, um, sometimes you get down in the weeds in it if you're trying to do, but like I said, it's just... Nine times out of ten, that's all you need, and it's simpler to 
edit an HTML file than it is to kind of log into a CMS. So uh, what I'm kind of curious is, is while you're at this, this second company and you're building out their website and you're, you're enjoying that work and you're learning, how are you finding, how is the next opportunity presenting itself? Are you, are you out there going to, I don't know if there were meetups back in 2011 or user groups or like, where is the next opportunity coming from? Yeah, uh, it's still just the, for me, it was still just the standard job search. Uh, like, I don't think I knew enough about that uh, community uh, to even think about meetups being a thing that I could look for. Um, so really, it was just looking for uh, job postings for something. And um, like, I, I could have totally just stayed where I was at. But, uh, you know, it was it wasn't going to be something that was going to help my career. Like there wasn't any kind of career development in that role. And and honestly, uh, of course, I didn't want to do that. Like I at that point, I I kind of knew I wanted to do web development because of all that kind of side work I was doing. So I, I did want to find a web development job. And um, at one point, I was able to find a little startup in Pittsburgh, which is where I was living at that time, um, that was doing event ticketing software called ShowClicks. And uh, I found a web designer and developer role that uh, I that they picked me up for. See, that's brilliant. You must have been super excited when you got that job because oh, now yeah. you got to work on this. What was there, not that you cared at the time because you didn't, but what was their tech stack going into that? It was PHP based, um, which, you know, my limited experience with PHP helped me at least be able to navigate things a little bit. Like at that point, I was still just very, 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 like not even what you would consider front end today, right? It was really more the web design and like really basic HTML. Um, and like if there was any JavaScript, it would be like something that I would copy and paste or use from uh, Dreamweaver. But um, like I was still just dipping my toes in the actual code itself. Um, but it was a it was a PHP stack. Um, I know they had some kind of like custom. I think it was a custom MBC, MBC setup. Um, so I I, would, I don't remember if there was any specific frameworks that they used. But um, like I the nice thing about that role is I was able to like one of the engineers there kind of like took me under his wing and was uh, really supportive with helping me learn these things. Because I think also because I kind of showed the initiative that I wanted to learn these things um, and become more productive, both in a sense of um, my role but being able to help the team do more effective things so um i i was fortunate to have somebody like that as a team that helped me learn and grow see because i was going to ask why do you think they hired you because technically you didn't have the full level of experience in fact did you think that going into sending your resume in did you think you know what i don't have a chance for this but i'm just gonna kind of do it anyway yeah i mean i felt like, I think if I remember correctly, it was still a little bit leaning more toward the design side. And at that point, like I had like my entry level design chops and um, I was able to be productive in the standpoint because I think the original kind of intent of the job was to do very basic uh, HTML. And uh, one of the things that they had me do was so each event would have their own event page. So one of the things customers like to do is customize the event page. Um, so that might be a simple banner, but it might also be like a fancy background and things like 
like that. But um, so that was from like the design perspective, right? Um, but maybe if there was a development project, maybe I would just create a simple landing page that people were able to see events. So an example of that is for Halloween or New, New Year's Eve, they would create these uh, holiday specific landing pages where they would put little dots on the on a map of where all their events were so that people could go there um, and visit and find one near to them, right? Um, so I would build those kind of pages and that's kind of where the code came in. Now, a lot of that was just copying and pasting code, but it's more basic things, right? It wasn't really deeming, uh, diving deep into that PHP stack and there wasn't that expectation. But I think just because of who I am and my interest and uh, wanting to learn and grow, that's kind of what pushed me into learning more about uh, learning more about PHP, about building uh, websites and how I could leverage that both in my role, but for my career. How big was that shop? Were there five of you? Were there 30 of you? Um, I want to say there was probably around 30 people and a good amount of that was like the uh, account managers and the CS team. Um, so it wasn't, it wasn't a huge team. All right. All right. So, and how long did you stay at this company? Now we're talking about 2012, I think, right? You start this Something job. Like so. that, yeah. Uh, but that one was another year. Um, and like at this point, like I feel like I'm job hunting. Like if I look at my resume and see the amount of time I spent in all these companies. But um, the issue with this company is, again, there wasn't really any growth opportunities. And um, I think I also kind of came into it underpaid because I, I didn't have any expectation of what somebody, what I was doing was, should have been making. So I gave a really low uh, salary offer for when I tried to say what I was expecting to make when I took that offer. And, you know, it was for me, it was still a progression as to what I was doing. But as I was learning more, I was growing as a developer and learning these things and what I kind of around where I should be making, it was definitely low. And having that conversation, they weren't looking to make any adjustments at that time. So um, at that point, like, you know, I tried to work with them to stay there, but it, it just kind of wasn't working out. Um, and that's when I began to look again for a new role. How quickly did you kind of identify that you were underpaid and how did that come about or you knew immediately? And then how long was it before you started jumping on Monster again? It took me a long time to kind of realize that it was underpaid. And I think there was kind of two aspects of that. One uh, was, of course, just kind of learning the expectations because I was still new in that role, right? So I was looking more on the design side of things as opposed to the development side of things. So like the, the salaries were a bit different. So one was learning the space and what people should be making in that space. But the other was uh, the fact of where I entered that job and where I was at that point in time, the year later, um, and the responsibilities and the different work that I was doing that was way beyond the, the original expectations. Um, so thinking about it from that perspective as well, it's just I was doing far more than what they were paying me to do. So you realize at that, so you, it's not that you didn't enjoy the work, you just came to the realization that you weren't going to grow in your career, I think both technically and financially at that point. You did everything you were going to kind of do. So you're coming up to that year and you jump on Monster again or whatever the board, job board is <laughs> for, uh, for 2013. And then I, I'm really curious at this point, since you've got three jobs now over the span of yeah, three years of experience, how long does it take you to, to now, from the time you start searching, from the time you get hired, how long does it take you to, to move into this fourth job? So I don't remember the exact timeline, uh, but it was definitely much quicker than the other uh, than the other job searches. You know, I, I did have a decent 
resume at this point. Like I did have experience on the job and what I was doing and um, like a, and a portfolio. Like one thing that I always made sure to do was maintain, uh, maintain my work on my website um, and have something to be able to show people, have something to talk about. Um, and that was both from like a design and development perspective. I was still kind of pushing myself as both that designer and the and developer. And, you know, somewhat do today, not as much of the designer, but um, like I ultimately needed that portfolio, right? So I think being able to have all that work on my website both showed that I was able to understand the website and build that website, but also that I was able to present that work in a way that people could understand what I was capable of doing. See, that's a little bit of forward thinking already, right? Because, I mean, GitHub comes into play in around 2008, and that's kind, that's kind of like now people's resume. And I tell this to everybody all the time. Go, go create some, you know, on the, on, the, on the engineering development side at least. Create a GitHub repo. Put as much stuff as you can in there. Um, that way, people want to see your work, right? Like you were, you're kind of a little bit ahead of the, the time because nobody was really thinking that, at least on the coding side, maybe on the design side. Yeah, and like I think I kind of attribute that to the to my design path because like part of being a designer is the visual work that you're doing and they push you to create that portfolio. And having a web presence was like something that was highly recommended at the time as that was a growing area, right? So having that design portfolio, and in my mind, it translated to also including code-based things that I could show. So whether that was a website it built, which still more visual, but I can talk about the code-based things that I was doing to help that aspect of the new role. So what is this next job you end up? Sure. So the next one was a... Uh, UX designer and front-end developer at a company called ThinkGeek, which is a geeky e-commerce company. Uh, very niche, but I enjoyed my time there tremendously. So you were working on client projects at that point? No. Uh, so they were an e-commerce company and like ThinkGeek was the website. So imagine like Amazon, but way smaller. Um, I mean, it was a very big company. They were eventually bought out by GameStop. They were just you know, they weren't small, but they also weren't like huge, huge, huge. Um, but uh, we worked primarily on the website. So that included things like um, working on product pages. How could we uh, add features to better, to make it more easy for people to uh, work with it? You know, wish lists, uh, just simply adding the products, um, choosing different products, um, but also the checkout flow. So making it easier for people to give us money, right? So that includes like adding your billing information and shipping information. Um, but also like aside from the joke about the money part, like that's also an experience that a lot of people get wrong. And um, how can we think about that from a UX perspective to make it easier for people just out of uh, the sense of they already want it? Like how can we make it easier for them? Um, but also there was this, the marketing sign of it where we would help create landing pages for different products and uh, for promotional events. So um, it all encompassed uh, the way that my role sat is we called it the UX team where we kind of did both UX design and front end uh, engineering, but we sat outside of the engineering team. Um, we were kind of like in the middle of both engineering and marketing um, where we kind of reported to both areas, um, but we weren't within the day-to-day -day agile of what the engineering team was doing. That had to be really interesting, right? I mean, tell me a little bit Very. more about, about being in that space between these two. And um, I imagine that you're getting requests from two different sides, conflicting priorities, like, how are you dealing with that? How are you managing that? Did it work? It didn't work? Why were you put there? 
explore that a little bit more with me. Yeah. So at times it was stressful, but I actually really enjoyed the position we were in because we had more flexibility to do things than um, either of the other teams did. And so what I mean by that, so thinking about it first from an engineering perspective, they were very, very strict on the on the agile and scrum regiments, right? So like they had their planned work for the next two weeks and um, they were very strict to make sure that happened. And, you know, totally fair. That's, that's the process they had. Um, but we weren't baked into that cycle. So we had more flexibility to do stuff. So if we had a project come up from marketing or if there was something that we thought would be more effective like we can spend their time where we think is the highest priority of course if it's unless it's like time restricted right um but what that also meant is when dealing with code based things kind of a throwback to that show clicks job my last job um i wasn't specifically trained to work in the PHP at ShowClicks, right? And that was a similar process at ThinkGeek, where it was a Perl stack uh, using something called Template Toolkit from the front end. But I wanted to do more than work in those templates. So I tried to learn how I could do little things in the Perl outside of that engineering scope so that we can still be productive, we can be creative with how we actually can build stuff and ultimately create better experiences for people um, outside of that engineering scope, which would have limited us from getting some of the work we did done. I guess I'm a little confused because engineering is writing all that code. Wasn't engineering dependent on you for some of that two week sort of work they were doing? Were you, did you have your own production sort of system and website where it didn't, it didn't matter what engineering and the other groups were doing? You could move at your own velocity and publish at your own velocity? Yeah, so we used Git and like there was definitely the deployment processes, but I think the deployment process was like on an every two week cycle or something like that, unless, you know, something came up. Um, so like we would basically fit it into that uh, deployment cycle. Um, but I think also at the same time, I think the templates were on a different cycle. I It's hard to remember. It's been a long time since then. Uh, but I believe we were able to independently push some of our changes depending on what that code was. Like if it wasn't the Perl, I don't think we could make those changes, but if it was the templates, I think we were able to make those changes um, by being able to kind of like independently deploy them. Um, but yeah, no, I like, that's a good point. So like we were able to kind of sit outside of that engineering scope, uh, which allowed us to be more productive and get things done. This sounds like a larger shop than you've been in. So, and more important now too, because you're dealing with people's money. So the, the the thought that pops in my head is you're you're pushing to production outside of engineering. Is there some formal QA process here? Or it was just it worked at my desk, so let's move forward. So it definitely depended on the thing. And I remember the first week that I was there. Um so aside from the templates and from the um from the Perl, there was also a homegrown CMS that included like all the product stuff, all the inventory, all that, but also like a, a CMS for managing some of the content on the front end so that people can go in and edit things. Now, one things about that CMS is you can put some of that template code inside of the CMS and that's how they achieve a lot of things like timed promotions where um, you have to show a specific banner until midnight happens, right? And then you need to flip it to the new promotion. Um, and I definitely learned the hard way that in template toolkit, instead of else if separated by a space, it was else if uh, E-L-S-I-F as one keyword. And I took down the site um, and then I heard the <laughs> then I heard the QA person coming around the corner yelling UX like because we broke the site um, and eventually figured out what happened. But yeah, that definitely happened. Um, 
you know, we, we tried to use the QA process as much as we could, but I think because of the nature of the stuff we were doing, um, some of it, we had to kind of just move fast and um, review our own work in our little pod as much as we could. Um, but if it was bigger changes, especially as we moved into, uh, as I moved into making changes to actual Perl, uh, we were able to make sure we got more QA resources because uh, typically that was reserved for the engineering team and that whole agile process. So one of the first, the first job I had in Miami, um, the the guy that ran the the entire operation had this like size 16 um, basketball shoe that he painted gold. It was called the boot. And anytime somebody made a mistake that would bring down production or whole development or something, this person, th that person would have to write up what they did, put it in the boot, and they'd have the boot on their desk until the next person made, the, made a mistake. And I always incorporated this from that time on because the, there were times where I would just get up from my desk without saying anything, grab the boot, put it, and everybody would freeze and go, uh, uh, <laughs> what did he do? And I wouldn't even say anything, and I would just put the boot on my desk. And the idea was that you didn't do that until you kind of fixed it, right? So the idea was you made a mistake, you fixed it. And, and the general idea was that if you didn't make at least, I, I, could t I said this to my teams basically, if you didn't get the boot at least once during this year, I'm going to question whether or not you're working or even trying. Yeah. No, it, it's interesting. Like I was really hard on myself about it the first time it happened. You know, I'm like a week on a job. Right. But, um, I, I was, you know, my team was very like understanding and like, they say like everybody takes down the site at least once. Like it's, it's basically, what do they call it? Uh, a rite of passage. Ex exactly. <laughs> yep. You got the boot that day, my friend. Yep, yep. <laughs> Trust me. I used to get the boot at least six times a year. And most of the time I just got up, picked it up and put it on my desk. <laughs> That's kind of cool. Okay, so how long are you at this company? So uh, I was there for three years. Uh, so I finally found something that I enjoyed. And I was because maybe it's because of the size of the company at that time. It wasn't a huge company, but like it was, I want to say it was like around 100, uh, including like the big CS team and such. Um, but like there was more of an opportunity for me to progress my career. So that includes both uh, getting a promotion uh, to getting a, the senior role um, at that point and also being able to keep learning on the job because I, I really found that work interesting, like, and beyond the work, like the, the job was fun. I think because of how geeky the site was, cause like we sold Star Wars stuff and Star Trek and like all those things. And like that bled into the work culture. Like people wanted to be there because they were having a fun with it and they wanted to uh, help people buy these really fun things. And um, so it was both an, a fun place to work, but I also really enjoyed the e-commerce perspective about it because the, the problems that I was solving were really interesting to me. But you were, I'm curious if you were learning more and more Perl to do more work. Were they changing any of the tech over those three years? They definitely didn't change the tech. Like it was still Perl, uh, basically the same backend stack. But I was learning more and more JavaScript during that time. So uh, we would rely more heavily on what we could do on the front end. And that included being very creative about what we were doing because, you know, we were limited as to what we were able to do with the backend. But how could we take what we have and kind of repurpose it in ways that we can create a better experience for people? So a lot of the stuff that we ended up doing were creative ways to uh, build new experiences for people in that in that manner. 
You know, that just reminded me of a really sad story I had this week where one of the guys that are doing some work for me, he's on the front end. I, uh, I, you know, I said to him, dude, why did you do these things that you did on the front end and not tell me what changes you needed on the back end? Because I tried to do a little bit of front end work and I realized what was missing and I made a bunch of changes. And I said, so why didn't you do that? And he looked at me, he's like, Bill, back end, I can never get the back end guys to change anything. I've got to learn how to do with what I have. That's what I did. And I, I felt so sad. And I said, well, at least while you're working with me, your job is hard enough. Your job is hard enough on the front end. I don't want to make it harder. So for now on, you push back and you tell me, and he literally did that yesterday. He pushed back and he said, I need that, that, that. And I started pushing and he said, no. I, and I said, okay, let's do it. Well, it's great that you have that mentality to uh, be able to like understand that, see that and do what you can to help. But, you know, not all teams are able to do that. And, you know, I, again, I go back to that agile process and I, I totally understand the agile process. That's great for helping predict what work you're doing and all that stuff. But um, because of that, and because of how rigid they were, we weren't ever able to fit uh, things we wanted to do or things we needed to do into that life cycle. And um, again, because of the nature of the work that we were doing, both working with marketing in terms of promotions, and when we actually learned that we needed to do something, uh, it would be too late to fit it into that cycle. So because of that, we never really had any uh, runway to try to get that work scoped out in a timely manner that would make sense. It's so, it's scary to me, right? Not all backend systems are exist for front-end systems, okay? But the back-end systems that exist primarily to feed a front-end that don't listen to the front-end developers and their needs, are it's mind-blowing to me. Like, yes, you're going to guess initially what you think everybody needs, but I don't know, dude, that scares me. Like, that, when he said that, I, I, like I literally, I, I wanted to cry. I couldn't believe it. The nice thing is, like, because like the more and more we did that work, like they eventually started to understand a little bit and were able to be a little bit more flexible. And we tried to think of ways we can prepare ourselves for the future. So one example is I completely rebuilt the mobile checkout and to create a better experience, I was trying to think about what we would need from the back end and how could we create the best experience we can. And at that time, it wasn't really uh I wouldn't say popular, it wasn't really well established to use APIs, like public APIs that we can post to, uh, at least for their uh, system that they had. So one thing that we explored was how can they give us those, uh, the APIs that we could work with inside of the client and do the client side um, approach, which turned out to be a great experience. Now that was something new for them that they had to explore and figure out, of course, like the security uh, issues around that to make sure that they weren't setting themselves up for failure. But, you know, being able to have that more collaborative nature between the two teams, like really came out with something great. Yeah. And now you have a code base that's cleaner and simpler and less code and more maintainable and and all that. And I can't read front end code. As soon as you add a button to a screen, I'm done. I'm not good with event. If you just, if you saw this terminal UI I just built, it's literally like any event that happens, I just repaint the screen with information that I got. Like I didn't, I tried to keep that as, I don't care how, how ugly that is. I didn't care. Just something happened, repaint. Something happened, repaint. Hey, you got it done. <laughs> <laughs> and it works and I can maintain it like, like my mental models. But I'm I'm fascinated by front end devs who can build these really kind of 
more than one button front ends with all the events that go on and maintain state. Yeah. I think the benefit of front end is like how visual it is, right? Like you can immediately see those results where I remember with the back end people, I don't know how they did it. Cause like every time they wanted to see something work, they had to like completely uh, restart the server, right? That took so much time. Like every time they wrote the code, I was in my mind, how did they deal with that? Where all I had to do was refresh the page. Um, but it's, it's also amazing to see how far the web has come and you know where how much more productive we're able to be since those kind of times. Well, what's interesting about this thing we're building is like you leverage on the back end side, you leverage tests as much as you can to get a sense even early on that things are working. I don't write tests first. I write I write the code first and then I start leveraging tests to, to validate. But it wasn't until I started building a little bit of my own UI that I saw flaws in the in the web APIs, right? And so that's a great point. Maybe backend devs need to try to consume their own APIs in one form or another. Yeah, like if you think about it, like every part of the stack has a little bit of UX involved in it. And from a backend perspective, there's ultimately somebody who has to, a person that has to use that backend API, right? And that could just be a, another developer on your team, but that's a person that needs to be able to use that or, you know, that applies to like front end components. Somebody needs to use that front end component. So how can you make the UX or we call it developer experience, DX of it, how can we make that experience as good as we can to make it easier for people to use? So I, I say in all my trainings all the time, right? Especially if you're a Go developer, you're, everything you do is building APIs. You know, that's all you're doing. And so I, I ask people all the time, how many times have you ever used an API, regardless of, you know, web or not, that was so bad it just made you miserable? You didn't even want to go to work the next day because you knew you had to be in this miserable state, right? And now I say to everybody, think about that. And now understand that all you're doing all day is writing APIs. Every function you write is an API. And so you can either make somebody else's life great, where they're excited to come to work and work on this, or miserable. And you know what it feels like to be miserable. So think about what you're doing here. <laughs> So that reminds me, like when I when I was first doing the API, like trying to convince them of, of the APIs, most of the stuff they've done, they did was XML based. So like the first thought is XML based APIs. And, you know, thinking about it, I was only used to JSON based APIs at that point. And you know, I was eventually able to convince them of why that's a better experience. But like, it was painful using those XML based APIs, at least in my opinion. Dude, I, I had a JSON based web API that returned XML once. It did something wrong. Oh my God! It, it, I felt so, like this is what I say all the time to the to the backend devs. You got to have a consistent error error type that you send back because you don't want front end devs having to write huge if statements depending on what API they're calling, and you have to make sure there's consistency there, right? Like. And the the like response numbers, right? Because the libraries we use on the front end, at least, like they recognize those different error types. And if you return the wrong response, like it's going to completely bypass a whole flow if you don't recognize that. Yeah, and you just, the more if else somebody has to put into code, the, you're losing your ability to maintain and manage it over time. So you're here for three years, that's amazing. And then what happens? Um, so at that point in time, um, a little bit of like frustrations on the job uh, just due to some of like mismanagement things. But also like, I also felt like I was kind of stagnating uh, in my role where um, like, I do feel like I learned a ton on that job, but I, I wanted to explore more. I wanted to do more things. Um, so I started to look for a new role again. Um, and I eventually came up with a 
company called uh, Element 84, which is a small software design, a small software shop, um, where the thing that really captured my attention with them um, wasn't that it was some big flashy thing, but they were doing some work that had like a positive um positive effect on the world where uh they do a lot of work with nasa for instance and i really like space stuff so like i thought that would be a cool area to explore and how could i help scientists do better things right um so that captured me and the work seemed really interesting from that regard so that's where i went now this company also is in pittsburgh i mean at this point everyone all these companies are still in pittsburgh i haven't updated my location so uh I moved down to Fairfax, Virginia uh, for the Think Geek role because um, that's where they were headquarters. And then for this new role, they were located in Alexandria, Virginia. Now, uh, where I lived like was around those areas. Uh, it didn't correspond directly, but the general vicinity. See, I'm, I'm now it makes sense that you're starting to get into a little bit of the aerospace because you're like that Virginia, Maryland, yeah, right? Area right, exactly. is going to be it's going to be there. So. That's interesting. And you moved that. Was that move hard for you in the like, were you excited about that, that move when you went to the, to uh, the Think Geek or? So that was an interesting time because uh, I took the job at Think Geek and declined a role actually in San Francisco with uh, BitTorrent, um, which could have seemed really interesting, but I ended up going to the Virginia role because I had a few friends from high school that were living there. So it like, Honestly, I took the easy route um, because I was afraid of moving to San Francisco all by myself and especially like super expensive out there. So that was also scaring me. Um, but ultimately, like I, I had a lot of fun with that role. Right. So moving to Virginia ended up being the better uh, route for me. But um, it that's that made it really easy for me that I was able to move down there. And um, I had to stay in an Airbnb for a couple of months, but then I was able to move in with my friends once the lease renewed and um, start from there. So that's interesting. I mean, I, I believe things happen for a reason. I, I left New York in, in 1994 and I came to Miami and I love Miami. Okay. But sometimes I think back and think, well, you know, if I had gone to San Francisco in 94, think about where I could have, right. I think that could have potentially accelerated maybe a little bit more of, of my growth and, and the people I would have met, right. Because it's San Francisco, like right, right ground zero. So do you ever think back and think, you know, if I'd gone to San Francisco and the opportunities there and the people I'd met there? Like, absolutely. Like, I'm on the same page as you. I always think about that. Like, what if I would have taken that job and uh, built, uh, and built, uh, been in Silicon Valley being able to, like, work with more of these startups and stuff? But, um, you know, being in the Virginia area is where I eventually met my wife. And um, like you said, I, you know, I, I'm not really the kind of person who believes like in fate and all that stuff. But like, it does kind of seem like it happened for a reason. Like I moved to Virginia and met uh, my wife and it went from there. Right. Yeah. No, things happen for a reason. So I don't, I don't second guess anything, but and hindsight's 2020. Right. So it's just, it's interesting. You had an opportunity to be in San Francisco at a really good time. Actually you're talking 2000, that was like 2013. Right. I mean, it was a really good time to be there so much startup activity going on so much kind of cool tech it would you know it would have been in 94 i don't think it was as cool as say you know 2013 but so how long so so tell me again remind me again the name of this new company that you now sure the new company was called element 84 
Um, and I, I just pulled up my resume because I wasn't sure about the dates, but that was January of 2017 when I started. Did you get to work on any spacey stuff? Did you get to work on some of the cool tech that you were hoping to work on? It's funny, at first, I didn't. <laughs> and I was like, I, I was kind of drawn in from that. And then I found out I was going to be on a different project. And I'm like, hey, what's going on? You know, I thought I was going to be able to work on NASA stuff. But um, I ended up working for a family-friendly video streaming company. Uh, and it wasn't Netflix or anything like that. It was just like small niche, very niche family friendly thing. Um, but like it ended up being a really cool opportunity. Now I, I didn't necessarily uh, like love the, the provider that we were working for, but being able to work on a video streaming site was very interesting because there's a whole different range of uh, challenges that I had to think about and solve for both from a UX perspective and from a engineering side. So um, they were a big AWS house or probably still are. Um, but so that's where I started to learn about cloud computing and how that fits into the entire uh, engineering ecosystem, but also um, learning more about in-browser technologies. So like I, I did a lot of JavaScript work before this, um, but they were able to use a little bit more modern tools because they were doing kind of client work and had more opportunities for those things. So that's where I started to learn more about React and um, was able to really explore uh, interesting things from my perspective. Can you briefly talk about the challenges that you said you were facing. I'm kind of interested in what those technical challenges were. I'm always, you know, everything today is, I, I don't have cable anymore, right? Like I, I watch all my TV on Hulu uh, for live TV and it, and honestly, that service is amazing, dude. Like it rarely, they have little bugs here and there, but like, I don't worry that my, the game I'm watching is gonna shut down, right? And I know the TVs are basically big browsers at the end of the day. So like, I'm kind of fascinated with how all that streaming works and the the efficiency that has to be there because of the amount of right like if if you were sending every single pixel every single time I probably don't have enough bandwidth to do that uh all over the planet right but kind of can you talk a little bit about how that works and then like the challenges that you were facing back in 17 which it's still fairly new in 17 uh but, but the, yeah talk about that so the the scalability is like the one that's right off the top of my head, like thinking about the scale of the, the different network requests that are happening on a video streaming site. And um, of course, we had to deal with scalability from a ThinkGeek side, um, but they, the e-commerce perspective, but um, it's you're still working with a more traditional website, right, where you have each individual page load. So it's more about the amount of people are hitting each page as opposed to hitting a page and then doing a bunch of other stuff on that page. So one of those things is video streaming and um, things that we had to think about. And we didn't actually host the the video content. We worked with a different provider that we would grab the video data for, but we had to develop the player around that and all the different uh, analytics around that. And um, not just analytics from uh, understanding the data perspective, which is a whole new challenge um, that, we, that other parts of my team would tackle, but um, things that enhance the experience. So for instance, every X amount of seconds, we would uh, trigger a tracking beacon so that we can see at what point of the video that they're actually in. So that if they pause, we can get them back to that point when they refresh the page or so that they can resume. Um, so a lot of features around that experience uh, had those different endpoints that had to be hit, right? And if those 
endpoints are being hit constantly, like every 10 seconds, every single person watching every single video, right? Like that's a lot of requests. So how can you make sure that that doesn't take down the site? Um, they were traditionally, the site was traditionally a Rails site and it did really well. Like uh, I'm not a huge Rails fan just because the nature of what I do, I think, but um, like it was working really well for what they had at the time, but they started to take more advantage of the cloud technologies. And at that time, uh, serverless functions was really starting to kick off and blossom. So uh, we tried to start moving uh, some of that work into functions so that we could take advantage of the benefits of serverless, like being able to quote, infinitely scale some of the those things and have a little bit more eat and reduce the costs of a lot of stuff. So there was a lot of opportunity there for um, how we could take the challenges that we have with that stack and the amount of traffic we're getting and how we could alleviate it with some of the new tools. I like serverless, but there's always this inherent latency to get that job up and running. And so it can't be for anything that's like truly on demand. It's got to be like can you get to this in n number of seconds, please? And that's fine in life, right? So what kind of stuff were you using the serverless tech for? So like the, the tracking beacons, for instance, like that, that needs to be, that doesn't need to be immediately, like instantly available, right? Because what ha happens is say the video hits five minutes. So we, we triggered that beacon and that makes the request, but that beacon request has that timestamp in it. So it, it doesn't need to like, just, we don't sync it based off the time it hit the server. Once it hits the server, it adjusts and adds that entry that it was paused at that particular time. Um, so I don't think anything we were doing from our perspective needed to be instantaneous. Um, so I think we were able to take advantage of uh, serverless from that perspective. I just hate managing I, I hate the ops side of things now. I just don't want to oh, manage yeah. anything on the ops side. So serverless, we were using it for some stuff early on. We were using our, before it was in the cloud, we were using a product from a company called Iron.io. This was before all the clouds decided to add this sort of feature functionality. And I loved it, man. Just how simple was it to just write a piece of code and put it out there and just hit it when you want and not have to worry about infrastructure or, I don't know, I love it. Moving past the video streaming site, I moved on to another project, was which was a video streaming, or I'm sorry, I just said video streaming, a satellite mapping dashboard. Um, and that was a bigger project where we were able to build it solely on React. We were build it uh, natively serverless. So everything started from those cloud technologies. Um, but because of all that uh, cloud orchestration, like, so we had those big cloud formation templates. We were using, I think, uh, I forget what exactly we were using Jenkins for uh, running the CI and I did not enjoy that at all. I tried to stay away from that as much as possible. And I know some people love it. Some people are fantastic at it, but as a front end guy, I, I dreaded going into that. Um, and like, I'm the kind of person that likes to be able to figure out little things so that I can be more productive rather than bothering somebody. But even with that, I could figure out little things, but um, not to throw shade on Jenkins, but there was such poor documentation and little documentation at the time that I had so much trouble trying to figure things out. And um, on top of that, waiting for things to deploy. So like de debugging a cloud formation template and waiting for it to deploy only to find out it fails and then scales back. Like, there was just a lot of little things like that. Right. But um, ultimately like the, the fun part of it for me was I was able to build a react application from scratch that was able to, uh, we use a uh, leaflet, if you're familiar to build a, a mapping interface where uh, after the, 
uh, satellite took the data, we would ingest it into AWS's cloud, and then we were able to make it available via a search interface. I was able to use that to put the imagery on the map itself, which was really cool. Yeah, it sounds super cool. How long were you at this company? Uh, that one was three years as well, I believe. Um, it was right right at the th around three year mark. Yeah. All right. And you're getting restless again? Yep. Yep. Restless again. Um, at this point in time, um, because of all that work in mapping, uh, in the back of my head, I, I was thinking, how can I, if I'm, if I feel like I'm able to make an impact by building these dashboards for scientists, how can I expand on that? How can I teach that to other people to maybe build mapping applications for other scientists or other people that can um, ultimately do some more good for the world, right? So I start to write blog posts and mapping is one of the first things that I started talking about. Um, and from there, like I, I did talks about it and then from there, I started to expand into other tools. So how could I teach other tools? Because I, I just really enjoyed being able to teach other people these things. And people seemed to like and understand how I was explaining it to them. So I just kept kind of pulling out that thread. Um, and that eventually, you know, as I was got, getting kind of restless, I started to think about different roles that I could take. And uh, developer relations was really becoming more of a thing where traditionally evangelism has been there for a long time. But um, at least in, in my in the communities that I was in, like developer relations was a different kind of take on it where it was more less about like strict evangelism of the product itself. It was more like, how can we help the developer community? And it just happens that we have this cool tool that can do that, right? Um, but that kind of drew me because of all that uh, learning or teaching that I was doing and how I could uh, kind of fit in that world. So what's interesting to me is there is nothing that I've heard in your story to suggest that this would be something you would do or be interested in. So what did I miss in this conversation with you that could have given me some insight that this is where you would end up? I don't think there was any, like, honestly, like I, like it came from that thinking of like, I feel like I'm making an impact. So how can I help others make that impact? And, um, I don't know, like I, because I started doing that, I enjoyed it. Um, I think I started writing for the company blog first and then I was writing for free code camp too. And um, being able to see the impact, like it was like, it, it makes such a, like, it's a very strong connection to be able to see people like reply, thank you, or like something, not just from like a, you know, uh, what is it? Like making myself feel good about myself because I see a thank you and praise more so like it helped them get their job done. Um, and that impact, like I was feeling that I could keep multiplying that impact by continuing to pull on that education thread. At that point now, is this where you find um, where you are today? Cloud, cloudinary? No. <laughs> so uh, my first role in developer relations was for a, a tool called Appla tools. Um, they are a visual testing tool. So what they do is like, if you have your website or mobile app, they'll take screenshots of it um, and compare it. Now there's a lot of tools that do that pixel by pixel, which is the big thing where uh, like if one little change on it, they'll like highlight that. Um, but what they do is they use AI so that maybe if you load one web page and then refresh it, maybe it'll be off by one pixel because of who knows, you know, it's the web, um, but they'll recognize that it's still the same thing 
thing and use AI to kind of align it so that you're still looking at it. And then they won't raise any flags if there weren't any actual issues with it. So um, it was a really, really awesome product. And you know, I had fun teaching it, but it was in the testing space and I just wasn't super interested in the testing space. Um, I guess I kind of uh, drew out that story really quickly, but I, I only stayed there for a year before I moved on again because I, not because I was getting restless or didn't enjoy the work. I just wasn't as interested in that space for teaching. You didn't have any passion for any of that. Like, like you, at this point, if we talk about the tech that you're really good at, you're, you're good at the JavaScript framework tech. You're good at cloud. You're good at, you know, the systems that you were building. You were interested in that, the mapping stuff, right? That's kind of where you had a passion. You moved to this company that's kind of not really doing any of that, but it was, yeah. I guess you were, you were like, you know what? I can be a full-time teacher, mentor. I want to take it. It just wasn't like it, it was the opportunity that was presented. Um, and, you know, I don't, I don't regret taking it because I was able to work with somebody called Angie Jones, who's uh, a community leader, a fantastic person, great uh, developer relations uh, role model. Um, so I had a lot of great opportunities there. I learned a lot on the job about testing. But yeah, I, I think, you know, I kind of took that role as a way into that without kind of thinking about the actual space I was getting into, um, which, you know, hindsight again but like i i don't regret it and now a year later what happens you decide i need to find another gig in some tech i'm passionate about yeah so funny story about cloudinary is i was actually talking to them in 2020 um about basically the same role that i have now uh but because of the pandemic, there was a hiring freeze and the way they made it sound is like they were pretty confident they were going to hire me at that point so like here I am hugely bummed that all of a sudden hiring was frozen and I no longer had this opportunity. I thought it was, that was mine. Um, but you know, uh, the time kind of synced up really well for, uh, the time that I was kind of wanting to move on from Apple tools where they were looking for somebody to bring on. So, um, that's when I, I kind of reconnected with the team that I was originally talking with and, uh, where that's kind of how I landed back at Cloudinary and took this role. Um, now Cloudinary, I, like, I don't want to do too much like, like, uh, promotion. Well, let like, me, they're... let me interrupt you for a second. Cause I've never heard of Cloudinary and I don't know why I haven't. So what, what is the problem that they're trying to solve? So Cloudinary is all around media. And when I say media, uh, that's like images and videos and audio and stuff, not not your news, news websites, uh, but they try to solve the problems associated with that. And that's everything from uh, asset management all the way to delivery, uh, where if you're a creative, you can work with their asset management system where you can upload the media, you can uh, kind of like make alterations to it. Um, but then from a delivery side, that's delivering from a high performance CDN, um, but that's also doing things like automatic optimization so that one of the things that's the coolest in my opinion and uh, very compelling is the, like you can automatically serve modern formats based off of the browser that's visiting. So what that means is uh, if you're visiting Chrome, which supports like the most modern formats, it's gonna give you an AVIF file if that's going to be the most uh, efficient way to serve that file. But if you're in Safari that doesn't support AVIF, it's going to give you WebP, um, which for that browser is going to be the most efficient. Um, but beyond that, they have things like transformations where you can do dynamic resizing and cropping. Um, going back to my e-commerce days with ThinkGeek, it's funny because they actually pitched us uh, Cloudinary at the time, which was very compelling for our processes. Ultimately, we didn't have the money for it. Um, 
But the thing that was awesome about it is the way that our creative team was set up at that time is they would create a ton of different versions for every single image that they would take. So if they took a picture of a model for a particular product, they would take that, they would crop it into all the different dimensions. They would also resize it to all the different dimensions and send that to us. But now if we had Cloudinary, what they could do is they can upload that source image and us as the developers can resize it on the fly to exactly what we need. So on the product page, if we're showing the big image, we can do exactly the dimensions we need. If it's for the little thumbnail, exactly the dimensions we need. Um, and that's on the fly so we have complete control over that while so the first time you request it they'll cut it and then i guess they cache exactly. it yep exactly and you're uh, good they must have some pretty powerful data center are they running on amazon over there i mean you need a lot of compute power yeah they're, they're running on aws uh, i don't know as much about the deep technical bits of the product yet um we're not so I work with the product team technically in my organization, but I don't work on the product. Um, so like right now, a lot of what I've been able to explore are the features, but I do want to try to get deeper into the technology, not just so I can explain things, but just generally out of curiosity, because uh, it is interesting, right? Because that is a whole new challenge that people don't generally think about. Are they splicing in ads and commercials in the video? I've, I've met some companies that, that do that for like an ESPN or something. Um, that's a good question. I. I think we might have that capability or we might be uh, getting to that, but it would all be customer controlled. So that's not something that like, I don't think that like we wouldn't provide the ads, for instance, like we would provide the APIs so that developers can do whatever they want with that. So tell, remind me again now that we're, we're we've got like, an, like another seven minutes left here um, to talk. So remind me again now, how long have you been at, at Cloudinary and what's your, What's your, like your primary role right now? Sure. So I've been here since November, so it's coming up on a year, um, but I'm a developer experience engineer. So uh, mainly a lot of the things that I do is like, I still do the education. So that includes content creations, like articles and videos, but um, I also work with integrations. So how can I find ways to integrate with exi existing products? So one of them is Netlify, if you're familiar, which is a hosting platform, hosting and deployment. Like there's a lot of things they can do, but ultimately deploy, uh, websites out to the web. I created a plugin for that so that we can swap in the images to Cloudinary URLs to take advantage of a lot of the features that we're doing. So how can I build little integrations that aren't going to be officially supported by our SDK team? But also it's taking a lot of this developer community feedback back to the team so that we can incorporate that feedback to ultimately build a better developer experience for the product. So your, your, your role is to interact with the developers who are working on the product or clients or both? Like traditionally it's more of the outside, like not, um, we're not necessarily ingrained in like the sales or the customer uh, conversations, but we're trying to uh, make ourselves available for that because of the experience that we have working with the broader developer community. But more traditionally, we are working with the developer community from um, like the social channels and uh, we go to talk, uh, conferences and talk to people and, um, and have booths there so that we can have that uh, communication and establish those relationships. So here's the question I like to ask everyone I meet who's kind of in your role, and regardless of the company that they're in. How are you and how is your company measuring your success? That's a good question. And we're actually trying to figure that out. Um, 
you know, I, there's a lot of companies that do that. I'd say the wrong way, like where they just simply measure, uh, like a traditional marketing way is getting signups, right? Like, how can I get signups? The more signups means I'm getting more people and we're being more impactful, right? That's not the case. Like what we try to look at is the long tail aspect of that. So of course we want people to sign up and build an account, but we want people to use it, engage with it and learn how to use it so that whether their account uh, goes from free tier to pay tier because they've seen that value or if they become a cloudinary advocate because they've seen that value and know how awesome it is and how much of a better experience they can have with that they might advocate to their company right like if i'm working on element 84 and i become a cloud like and i'm advocating to them that we should use that on projects that's kind of where we see uh the biggest benefit of how we can uh have success see for me the answer always, and I'm a business person, so the answer is always, I want to see an increase in revenue. I don't care how you got there, but if the revenue line was X and you've been here for a year and the revenue line is an X plus, then what kind of, right? Like the impact needs to be on revenue or... Totally. And like I said, we're, we're still trying to determine like how we can best measure that in a way that's going to represent the work we do. And um, we re recently got a new uh, VP of developer relations that has a lot of experience and we're hoping that she can help us out with that. But um, generally speaking, like the work that we do, has, there's two challenges with it. One, it's more long tail because we're building those relationships and really helping them solve problems. We're not going to see that immediate gain. We're not going to see them immediately sign up for a paid account and then that's going to direct hit the revenue and also when we go out and do talks or um if we're in the if we're on twitter answering questions like we're not going to see that directly attributed to the work we're doing right um so like it's it's more challenging to attribute the work we do and actually see it related to that uh revenue well, it, it's a marathon this isn't like like in three years if the revenue hasn't increased then i would say what what's happening on the devrel side is not working right like i do devrel for arden like my job is to out, be out there very similar, right? I'm, I'm, I love helping people. I love educating people. I love uh, giving all the stuff that you're doing. I love. But at the end of the day, if it's not growing revenue, growing clients, growing business, then I'm a cost center. Totally. And I have to kind of really rethink what I'm doing at the same time, right? But it's beautiful to be able to do this kind of work that you love and be out there with people and help people. Um, and then the added benefit is the company's also um, gaining value from that. Yeah. And like we, we thoroughly believe that we are adding that value because we, you know, we see people who are able to make it click when we're helping them through a challenge. Like they can immediately see the benefit that we're trying to help them with. Right. So like we do see that in what we're doing. It's just, we can't, like it's it's more challenging to have that in the data and how we can actually have that in the stats. So we got like three minutes left. What what conferences are you attending? Like what are the conferences for your business and your tech? So I don't I don't know when this is going to air, but one that I'm excited about is in November called Jamstack.conf, which is a, a big community that we do work around that I've been a part of for a while. Uh, where I don't know if you've heard of Jamstack, but it, it's kind of it started out as playing on like the static sites where the static sites would use uh, decoupled APIs, and that was really the foundation. Now that's something you've probably used. Uh, you just might not have never heard the term uh, associated with that kind of uh, architecture. But um, there's also uh, ImageCon, which uh, Cloudinary, it's a Cloudinary event that I'm excited about. I'm giving, I'm helping out with a workshop and giving a talk there. 
Um, what else? I'm going to a bunch of conferences. I can't think. I was just at Cascadia JS in Oregon, which was a lot of fun. Um, but there's, you know, there's an abundance of conferences. So I'm sure, you know, there's a good chance that people will see me around. And like the workshop, the, 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 the next workshop you're doing, what is the workshop about? Is it going to be about on cloudinary sort of tech or is it a little more generalized on JavaScript? Yeah, so because it's a Cloudinary event, it is uh, going to be Cloudinary focused for that one, uh, where we're going to be teaching how to use a Cloudinary in a Next.js stack. So that includes some more of the advanced features. Uh, so working with like serverless functions, how can we uh, work with media in a serverless world? Um, but also how can we incorporate some more of the uh, the widgets and the different uh, user experience things that we features that we have uh, within that application context? All right, Kobe. So this is what we're going to do. I'm going to reach back out to you in two years. That's going to be your three-year anniversary Cloudinary. <laughs> and we're going to see if you're restless or not. You haven't gone – You haven't, and, 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 and anybody listening to Cloudinary should not be panicking, right? If you get two years out of anyone, you've done great. Three years is like – it's just the way the world is right now, right? So this isn't like – you panic. This is, I've grown and it's time to do something else. But it will be really interesting because I, I can feel the excitement that you have um, about this role in the company. And I, I think you're going to go four years. I think that's, that's going to be, Thanks. put it on Vegas, putting a hundred down. Colby's going to be here <laughs> at least four years. I, I feel it. I'm feeling good about it too. Like I, I still have a lot of the same excitement I had when I started and, you know, you can't always say that about every opportunity, but um, you know, I'm feeling good about where I'm at. I'm having a lot of fun. It's a great product. So yeah, we'll see. All right, Colby. Uh, for anyone who has listened to us today, if you, uh, if somebody wanted to reach out, say hi or ask a question, what's the best way to get in touch with you? You can find me everywhere at Colby Fayok. Um, so Twitter is usually where uh, most people catch me, but really anywhere, um, that's where you'll find me. Brilliant. We'll get that in the show notes as well. So Kobe, thank you for spending all this time talking to us about your story and your journey. Uh, if you're at any of these conferences, go find Colby and say hi. You can already tell he's a super nice guy. Um, and and, and uh, buy him a beer, okay? He needs a beer. <laughs> Got it. All right, this is Bill Kennedy and Colby Fayok saying goodbye and thank you for spending time with us here at the Arden Labs podcast. <laughs>